0: Well, no one likes being the odd one out. In 1951, a psychologist named Solomon Ash conducted what has now become known as the Ash Conformity Experiment. He wanted to measure the effect of peer pressure on an individual. So he invited people to be part of an experiment where they would be shown a single line on a sheet of paper And then on another sheet of paper were three lines of different lengths, labelled A, B and C. And one of those lines, A, B and C, was very obviously the same length as the first line on the other sheet of paper. And the other two were completely different lengths. And the idea of the experiment was to go along the row of participants, asking each one to say which line, out of A, B and C, was the same length as the original one. But the thing is, unknown to the volunteer participants, all the other people in the room had been briefed beforehand to answer the question correctly for the first two rounds and then in the third round, deliberately all give the same wrong answer. And so the unwitting volunteer was then sat at the end of the row and listened to all the other fake participants answer B when he or she was absolutely sure the answer was C – And 75% of those volunteers changed their answer at least once during the experiment to conform with the rest of the group against what was obviously true. Do you feel that pressure to conform? The thing is, if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, the world can very often feel like a place where everyone else is saying the opposite of what you think. To the point where you can begin to question... Well, hang on a minute. Have I, have I been duped somewhere? You don't really believe as a god, do you? No one believes that anymore. It's just medieval superstition. But sometimes it's more subtle than that. You know, you, you Christians, you 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 evangelical Christians, you're so narrow. You no, know, we're Christians too, but we broadened our outlook. No one be- believes in things like sin anymore. It's psychologically destructive. Talk about love, don't talk about sin. And we began to see last time that this letter, this first letter of John, was written to people who were under pressure to conform to the teaching of certain other people who had previously been part of the church, but had left for reasons of sort of spiritual superiority. And those who were left behind were in danger of conforming ...to this false teaching. And John writes to reassure them... ...you know the real God. He appeared in history as Jesus Christ. He was proclaimed by the apostles. So if you stick with the apostles teaching about Jesus in the Bible... ...you know the real God. You don't need to look or go elsewhere. Be reassured. That's what we saw last time. And he's focusing in this first chapter and a half on the basics of the gospel and the Christian life, before he gets more focused and polemical from the second half of chapter two, as we'll see. And in these verses, we begin to get an insight into one of the big areas of challenge for these Christians, an area where they were tempted to feel spiritually inferior and to wonder if they were missing out on something that the people who had departed might have discovered. The issue was sin. Now, these days, no one wants to talk about sin do they? At least of all Christians. You know, you won't be going into school or work tomorrow saying, I want to tell you about sin. That's not going to happen. And often we feel the, mess- the pressure to make our message feel more positive. Let's just focus on God's love. And yet coupled with that, We're aware of our own shortcomings. We're aware of our own sin. We're aware of our own repeated failures in our daily lives with our friends and our families and our colleagues. And perhaps sometimes we despair. Can I ever change? Why don't I ever change? And what if someone came to you and said, you don't need to struggle like that anymore. Come with us and you will feel better about yourself and you will be a better person. Would you go with them? Would you conform? Or would you be willing to be the odd one out and stick with what you know? That's the issue in these verses. What, what, what is sin, really? How serious is it? What can be done about it? So John starts in verse 5 with God. And that we see that in the first heading, the God who defines light and darkness. The God who defines light and darkness. Light is a big theme in John's writing and we saw that in the opening verse, In, in, in his gospel, light is all about moral goodness. God is light is not the only thing we can say about God. We read later in the letter that God is love, and actually the Bible is careful not to make anything about God the kind of ultimate thing that is true about him. But he is light. He is goodness itself. Well, what does it mean to say that he is goodness? Is there some higher standard of goodness that God himself conforms to? No, he is good. He is goodness. He defines it. Now, I am tall. And this, for some reason, this is regularly pointed out to me. I don't know why, but it's not okay, as far as I can see, to point out to somebody how short they are. But I have observed through the course of my life, because I've always been taller than everyone else, it does seem to be completely normal to inform a tall person daily, sometimes several times a day, that they are indeed very tall. It's true. But here's the thing, you see, I do not define tallness. You see, you could take me out of the world and there would still be tall things and there would still be people who are significantly taller than me. There are such people. They do exist. And you could take tallness away from me by removing my feet or something like that. But I would still be me. I'd be changed a little bit, but I'd still basically be me. But God is not good like that. There is no goodness apart from God because in the beginning, God was always there. As we saw last time, the eternal life, as he emphasises in those first few verses. So if you, if, you took God, and if you took goodness away from God, he would not be God at all. He is always perfectly, unchangingly good. As good as you can possibly be. He is the definition, the standard of what goodness looks like. And by using this metaphor of light and darkness for good and evil... John is saying sin is like darkness. It's not so much the opposite of good as the absence of good, the absence of God. Not going his way, in other words, putting myself first. So the question for every human being is, are you living, are you walking, as he says here, in the light or in the darkness? Do you go God's way or do you go your own way? Furthermore, the thing about light is that it searches out and exposes things which are in darkness. Darkness marks everything that is opposed to God. It started in the Garden of Eden. You know, Adam and Eve, and they they sinned against their Creator. And what's their immediate instinct, having broken his commands? What's their immediate instinct? Is to hide, get in the darkness, away from the light, to conceal. Sin is about hiding from God, hiding from reality. And in the darkness lies and deception reign. So do you see, this is the first thing John wants to get straight about, the real God that we heard about last time. He is all good. He defines what is good. His light is always on, you could say. There is no darkness there. And we then see two contrasting ways of responding to that light. One set of things that is false, And one, that is true. And he kind of alternates between them as he goes through these verses. John is often like this, as we'll see as we go through the letter. It's not a linear argument where you go from one verse to the next. You sort of see him coming and going a bit from things. And you have to take a step back and see it as a whole. So, secondly, false claims from the darkness. Verses 6, 8, and 10 in chapter 1. Can you see three claims are made in those verses? Why why would John suddenly start saying, if we claim all these things? Presumably because this is exactly what those who have left, who have departed, are claiming. They claim to have fellowship with God. They claim to be without sin. And, And subtly different, they claim they have not sinned. And those things are... Connected, aren't they? Because on the face of it, sin is what separates us from God. Sin is saying, I don't want God in my life. I don't want him to be the boss. I can handle my life my own way without him, by myself. And so there is no fellowship with God where there is sin. Do you see? It's the same thing. So what are these people saying? They're saying, hey, look, there's no problem here. There is none of that sin that separates us from God. And so we are in with God. We know him. But John says, no, the reality is they are walking in darkness. Now imagine for a moment that you've got a new job in a coal mine. I don't know if anyone here has ever worked in a coal mine. There's still one or two operating in the UK. You come home after a long day at work and you are completely covered from head to toe in black grime. You are utterly filthy. And single or married, tonight is date night. What options do you have? Well, one, of course, is to take a shower, to get the scrubbing brush out, get your clothes in the wash. But there is another option. Turn off all the lights. No candles, no screens, curtains closed, no light at all. Now, for a while in the darkness, you might be able to convince yourself and maybe somebody else that all is well. You know, claim as a power cut, enjoy a meal in total darkness. But here's the thing, it's all a lie. The lights will come on eventually and the deception will be revealed. Can you see? That is the method of dealing with sin that John is talking about here. Turn off the lights, walk in the darkness, and in the darkness where there is no light, no one can see the sin. Now, we instinctively do this all the time, don't we? We prefer to pretend that there isn't a problem. I'm basically good. It's my background that's the problem. The way my parents brought me up. He makes me angry. She winds me up. I didn't really mean what I said. It's just the alcohol talking. I've had a bad day. Where there is a problem, we deflect the blame to somewhere else, to someone else. And the rest of the time, we're basically convinced that we're good people. And it's those people over there that you should be talking about, not me. But when we do that, it's all a deception. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon once had a man come to him and say, Mr. Spurgeon, I have conquered my sin. I no longer need to battle against it, for it is no longer a bother to me. Now, Mr. Spurgeon was a man who didn't beat about the bush, and he took a milk jug and he poured its contents over the man's head. And miraculously, the man's sinless perfection instantly dissolved. Now, you may have heard me say this before, but if I take this glass of water and I start sort of throwing it around and shaking it, what's going to happen? Water's going to come out. But why will water come out of this glass when I start throwing it around? Well, we want to say it comes out because I'm shaking it. That's why water comes out. But there is a more fundamental reason, isn't there? The fundamental reason why water comes out of this when you shake it is because there is water in it. A glass without water in it would not spill out, would not spill water out when you shook it. And sin is like that. We want to say it's somebody else's fault. We want to say it isn't there at all. But the reality is there is water in the glass. There is sin in us. And so John says, if we say we have fellowship with him and we have no sin We lie, verse 6. We deceive ourselves, verse 8. And we make God out to be a liar, verse 10. But here's the problem. For the person who despairs of their greed or their selfishness or their temper or how they keep giving in to sexual temptation, if someone says to them, you don't need to battle those things anymore. Just come with us. It's all okay over here. You don't need to worry about those things. Well, that is going to be seriously tempting. And as we look around us in the wider church, in this country and beyond, that exact thing is happening. We need to move with the times on sexual ethics, people will say. The Bible is out of date. What you call sin, that's not sin at all, people will say. Just go with your desires wherever they take you. The sky won't fall on your head. Or perhaps... You know, Christian, you don't need to take Jesus seriously when he says to expect following him to be difficult, to involve suffering or sacrifice. You can have all the material benefits that the world longs for. You can live for exactly the same things as your atheist neighbours, and you can just add Jesus on top on Sunday mornings. When someone offers me what is in effect a gospel free of sin, free of challenge, it will sound attractive. But John says, if you say there is no sin, if you say you have not sinned, it's all a big fat lie. Don't be deceived. And then thirdly, the alternative to all that is true life in the light. True life in the light. How then can you walk in the light with the God who is perfectly good when you are not Good. Well, verse 7 through the blood of Jesus. Verse 9 if we confess our sins, he will forgive us, he will purify us. Chapter 2, verse 1 he writes, so that we will not sin. That's his overall desire, so that we won't live in the darkness. But the answer is not to try harder not to sin, just to do that. No, if anyone does sin, put your socks up, try harder. No, he doesn't say that. He says, if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now this is really important to grasp. Do you see, walking in the light doesn't mean being perfect. Walking in the light doesn't mean cleaning the grime off ourselves, smartening up our act. That's what so, so often what people assume it means. And that may be why we end up preferring to hide in the dark. You know, I don't want a life full of guilt in the light, constantly feeling not good enough, constantly having to clean myself up as if it all depends on me. And so we settle for a life of deceiving ourselves In the darkness. Sometimes we do that as Christians. We go for days, weeks. We think, I can't pray. I can't even go to church because I've done this particular thing or whatever it is. Or sometimes people do it in a much bigger way and they, they, they just turn their back on Jesus altogether. I'm not that bad, really. It's Christians. It's the Bible. They make me feel guilty. No. Life in the light is a life of confessing our sin and being forgiven. And when we do that, John says, "There is forgiveness. God does not hold our sin against us. We have fellowship with him. That's the implication of verse six, once we are walking in the light and confessing our sin. And do you notice verse seven, fellowship with one another as well. they go together. There is also purifying and cleansing. he says, He actually works in us now to transform us and make us like Jesus. God is faithful. And God is just, says John. He forgives, he doesn't compromise his holiness. Now how is that possible? Well, we need to see those last two verses in chapter, beginning of chapter two because we have an advocate who himself is an atoning sacrifice. The word has often been translated a propitiation, verse two. The reason we can walk with God and have fellowship with him in the light, even though we sin, is that Jesus has taken the consequences of our sin, the judgment we deserve from God, he's taken that on his own shoulders at the cross. And he stands now as our advocate in our defense. And as John Stock put it, this is not love pleading with justice, because this is sometimes what people think this is about, as if loving Jesus has come into the world and he's the loving one and he has to stand and plead with an angry father and what's he saying? Please God, overlook their sin just one more time. Please, just, just give in a little bit. Sweep it under the carpet. No, it's not that. This is justice pleading with love because justice has already been done at the cross. The judgment we deserve for that sin that we committed this morning, if we're trusting in Jesus, that has already been taken by Jesus. So we confess and we trust and we know we are forgiven. So we can walk freely in the light with God despite our ongoing sin. Because when he looks at us, he sees Our sin, he sees Jesus, and his blood now cleanses us and transforms us daily. You may have fallen short of who you know God wants you to be, even this morning, but confess your sin, be honest about what has happened in your heart with God. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see that sin that is burdening your heart, he sees Jesus speaking. In your defence, he's already died for you. It is done. Now enjoy life in the light with God, free from guilt. And says John verse 2, this is not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. That's a phrase over which a lot of ink has been spilt. Does John mean Jesus died to take away the sin of every human being, whether or not they trust in Jesus? Well, he can't mean that in a universal sense because the Bible makes it clear we will pay for our sin ourselves if we don't trust Jesus. Could he mean that Jesus died kind of provisionally for the sin of the whole world? So it's up to us now to kind of cash the check that he's written out for us. Well, it would be hard to argue his sacrifice has actually achieved our salvation if it really depends on us and whether we accept it now. Of course we need to put our faith in Jesus, but even that faith, the Bible says, is a gift. It's all about what he's done for us, not in the end coming down to us and whether we get ourselves together and trust in him. In in John 3.16, we read a similar thought. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the emphasis in that verse is on the greatness of God's love. He loves even the world in its sin, in its rejection of him, so that in the second half of the verse, anyone, anyone at all who believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So do you see what this means? It means, for the sins of the whole world, walking in the light is open to anyone. From any background, whoever we are, whatever we've done, trust him. And be reassured Therefore, walking in the light doesn't mean being perfect. It means being honest about your sin. Not trying to minimise it as we so often do with, it, with ourselves, in our own hearts, in, our, in the way that we interact with each other. We think, no, I've got to excuse things. No, no, you can be honest. You can say, look, I've messed up. I've done what is wrong, but let me ask for your forgiveness and let me then trust in Jesus, knowing that I am forgiven. Will you forgive me too, as God has forgiven me? When we despair at our sin and we struggle with our failings and we battle temptation, be reassured. This is not a sign of being in the darkness. Because in the darkness, no one bothers to struggle. No one cares. They don't talk about sin in the darkness. So no, everything's fine over here. You don't don't need to worry about that. No, when you struggle and you feel like, oh my goodness, I've, I've messed up again. Now that's a sign of walking in the light. So don't then wallow in your sin. Go to the Saviour. Go to Jesus. Go to the one who speaks to the Father in your defence. And know He has already taken the punishment for you. Go to Him daily. And this also then means that if you're wondering about new teaching that you've heard in you know in a, in a church or, or a sermon online or a podcast or a book, and it sounds attractive, it sounds like it's onto something that you you've not heard before, you've not seen. Listen very carefully to what it says about sin, because if it plays down sin, if it says it's not such a big deal, well, it's as dangerous as a kind of quack healer who who claims. You can cure your cancer with 30 minutes meditation a day and no medicines. No, sin is deadly serious, but there is a cure in the death of Jesus. And you can walk with God in the light today, despite your sin, because of him. In those studies that Solomon Ash conducted about social conformity, the number of people who gave in to the majority wrong answer, was reduced pretty much to zero when they introduced just one or two other volunteers who were able to give the right answer alongside one another. That's all it took for them to be reassured that they hadn't gone mad, that they should stick to what was obviously right. We need one another to reassure one another, it's okay, this battle with sin is normal. Keep coming back to Jesus at the cross. But we won't be able to do that if we're not honest with one another about what we struggle with and about the ways in which we all, you, me, everybody, need the forgiveness of God. If you're not yet being honest with God about your sin and coming to him for forgiveness through Jesus' death, hear that invitation that is implied In verse 1 of chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father, one who makes us right with him when we trust in him. Come out of the darkness and walk in the light. Just put your trust in this Jesus. And if you are doing that already, be reassured in the battle, in the mess, in the daily failures and weakness, confess your sin and stick with the Saviour who died for you and died for me. Let's pray. we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Father, we each acknowledge in different ways that we fall short of your standards for us in ways that we're deeply aware of in ways we're not even conscious of. We are broken people. And Father, rather than denying that or hiding or, or, or just staying away from you, we, we pray instead that our response would be to confess and to know then you are faithful and just, that what we deserve has already been taken by Jesus on the cross. May we then know the joy of a fresh start of forgiveness, and of your work now, today, in our our lives, by your Holy Spirit, cleansing us and purifying us, working in us, so that we walk ever more closely with you. May we walk with you in the light, reassured, and may we invite others to do that too. Amen.